service. It's good to see you guys. Uh, if you will look through the back of the announcements when you get a chance, there's some good mercy ministry stuff in there. I just highlight one, and this was uh, super successful last year, and so uh, we're going to do it again. Uh, the hat and mitten tree for the kids at the Glen Carbon Elementary School. Um, we're going to do that, and so be thinking about that. If you have any questions, see Sandy Hall. But also, uh, I mean, there's always work to do there, right? There's uh, tutoring and uh, we provide lunches uh, on the weekends for some of those kids who don't get food if they're not in school. So um, if you want to support that and be a part of that ministry, it's a great opportunity to be involved in gospel living in the community. Sandy Hall is the person to talk to. There's other stuff in there that's good too. Uh, check those out and look through those. The only thing I wanted to throw at you was, uh, last week I mentioned this, at the end of this month, sometime uh, end of October, beginning of November, we're going to start a new members class, again, for adults, as well as getting our youth confirmation class, which uh, was interrupted uh, back in the spring. We're going to get that going again in person. So if you know of any kids who want to be a part of that, um, there's a handful that are already in there. Or anybody who's interested in the new members class, which, like I told you last week, frequently there are uh, church members who show up just to hang out and eat donuts and talk theology. 
uh, and it's always a good time. So that's an uh, opportunity open to you guys as well. That's really all the announcements I've got. Uh, let's go ahead and stand and we'll begin worship. Let's begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon, forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Two epistle readings this morning, one from Ephesians and one from 1 Peter 5, and we're going to touch on both of those when we think about um, uh, biblical church government in the sermon. So Ephesians 4, and you guys remember this, we read some of this last week. Paul says, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, from 1 Peter 5. Peter says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is the word of the Lord.
Christ be my leader by night as by day. Safe through the darkness, for He is the way. Gladly follow my future is there. Darkness is daylight when Jesus is there. Christ be Okay, uh, the Holy Gospel according to St. John, the 10th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Okay, uh, you're gonna want to, if you wanna follow along in the the scripture, you'll wanna turn to the page in the bulletin that has the two epistle readings. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna continue on with, uh, the discussion of biblical church government um, and what it should look like, uh, not arguing for what we have, but trying to discover what is it that God wants us to do and then mold and shape the way our church functions to match up with that. If you haven't, I'm about to do a little reset here from the past few weeks. And if you haven't, if you, if you, I feel bad saying this. If you, haven't, if you weren't here to hear the sermons or you didn't watch them online, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to those not because they're fantastic sermons, but because they all kind of build on each other. And what we've done so far is like really broad theological principles, kind of narrowing down to what are we as St. James gonna do? So the first big broad principle that we saw three weeks ago was that God is the king of the universe. God is absolutely sovereignly in control of everything. Second principle, he exercises that kingship through King Jesus. Third principle, getting even narrower and getting closer to the life of the church. How does Jesus exercise his authority? How does Jesus rule and reign? And the answer is by himself, that's one way to say it, or the body of Christ. Remember this principle? Super important. We're gonna have to keep coming back to this. The body of Christ is the body of Christ. It's not some sort of, it's not some sort of cute metaphor that Jesus is using to say, you know, where two or three of you are gathered in my name, 
I'll be there too, you know, I'll, kind of, I'll be the, empty, the guy in the empty seat, you know. It's not some sort of like weird, he's actually saying that when you guys are gathered together, I am there, that's me. I am the church, I'm the body of Christ. Now, I know there's a, a deep mystery here because the church is broken and frequently dysfunctional and frequently uh, uh, working counter to the mission of Jesus. And yet, Paul still insists, even to the Corinthians, who are a weird, screwed up, broken church, that you guys are the body of Christ. You are the temple of God. And so, uh, that's how does, Jesus, how does Jesus exercise his authority? He does it through the church. Now, I don't wanna spend too much time on this. Go back and listen to last week's sermon if you're interested. What that means is that Christ does not exercise his authority through a sole person. This is the old sacerdotal, this is medieval Roman thinking that the church is the priest and that it's the job of the lady to come and watch the priest do the work, the mass, the work of the ministry. Somehow that's managed to sneak itself into the Lutheran church against Luther's own teaching so that we sometimes imagine that it's the pastor that does, that the pastor is the sole authority. We talked about the, the old Herr Pastor thinking where the, you know, the benevolent dictator of the church, the autocrat, the one who says, this is what we're gonna do. I speak on behalf of God and you guys follow. That's not biblical, right? Only Jesus has the authority anywhere in scripture to serve as a sole leader. Everywhere else, authority is, uh, well, in, in the New Testament, the authority is in the body of Christ. The second way that we saw last week, again, this is review, is democratism is not the way that Christ works in the church. You voting in a congregational meeting is not God's will for getting things done. We know frequently that voters get it wrong. We know frequently that the minority is right and the majority is wrong. The problem, though, is that we are stuck as Americans with the vox populi, vox dei, idolatrous myth. The voice of the people is the voice of God. That's not the way it works. Instead, okay, so if we don't have like the sole pastor telling people what to do and we don't have the voters deciding here's what we're gonna do and this is what God's will is, how does Christ exercise his authority in the church? Again, this is just reviewed from last week. Through his body, organically, as his body works together. I know this is messy. It'd be nice if it was clear cut that we had like a chain of command or something like that. But just like my knee doesn't decide to go to the back of the church, my whole body does. And my knees come along organically. And if one of my knees decide not to come along, I go to the doctor because there's something wrong with me. I don't vote on it. My toes don't vote and my fingers and my, you know, my hair, we all do it together. And this is, the, this is the vision, this is why Paul frankly uses body of Christ imagery is because Christ works through his body. Okay, all that was last week. Now, what does that mean for a pastor then, okay? It's a weird sermon I'm gonna preach because I'm gonna, it probably wouldn't be healthy to always talk about what pastors should be like. But it's worthwhile once in a while. I mean, basically because it's good for me to put myself account in accountability out there to you guys to be held accountable to what God's word says a pastor should be like. It's also good for you if you ever work with somebody who does too much work or doesn't do enough work. It's frustrating, isn't it? If you work with somebody, if you would be in a church with a pastor who would take on too much authority, getting in the way of the gifts that you've given, you'd wanna know, okay, hey, you need to stop and back off. If you also had a pastor who did too little, like if you had a coworker who did too little, forcing you to fill up the gap where that person is missing, you'd wanna know that too. So this is about me, yes, it's also about all of us though. It's about the body of Christ and how we function together. I'm talking really fast because um, this is a really long sermon. I'm gonna try to not make it too long, but uh, I, if I'm talking fast, that's why. Okay, so pastors. Let's talk about pastors for a little bit. Ephesians 4, look at the Ephesians 4 reading. 
Those of you who are in adult Bible study will know this. Some of you might be surprised by this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers. Pastors, I think that probably most of us assume that even the lousy pastors that we have, and I can see you looking at me, are super important, right? They gotta be like really important in God's word. Actually, you know what's interesting? The word pastor is mentioned one time in the entire New Testament, one time. And it's right here, Ephesians 4, verse 11. It's the only time the word pastor is used. If it's so dang important, then why isn't Paul talking about it a lot? Well, that's a good question that we're gonna get to next week. But just hold it in, hold it, suspend it there in your mind as something to look forward to, to, to start, like the stuff that we talk about today is gonna get hung up on that hook next week, okay? But the word pastor is here. It's actually, so this is interesting. The word pastor is just, it's just the same, it's in, in, in Greek, it's just the word for shepherd. The word pastor and pasture are etymologically related. Pastors, it's just a fancy word for a shepherd. So some, some, of, the, some of the versions, some of you will have, I think, the, the, the most recent editions of the ESV actually say in, in Ephesians 4.11, shepherds and teachers. That's the word, it's just pastor, word just means shepherd. Now, the verb for shepherd or pastor shows up a ton. It shows up a lot in the New Testament. First Peter 5 is one of those. Look, look down at the bottom of the page. Verse two, Peter says to the elders, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Pastor the flock of God that is among you. Now, what's interesting here is he doesn't say to, he doesn't say to pastors, pastor the flock of God. He says to elders, shepherd the flock of God, pastor the flock of God. Right. Now, we're gonna, again, this is next week. We'll talk. So what I wanna talk about next week is this. I'll just tell you. Why is it that the verb for pastor, frequently its subjects in the New Testament is elder? This is not the only verse where this is the case. Frequently it's elders, pastor, the flock of God. We'll talk about that next week. Meanwhile, back to uh, pastors and pastors shepherding. Most people say, most, most commentaries say, and some of you have heard this before, Ephesians 4.11, it's got these nice little four units in there. Like, and I can't talk about it in, too much in Greek because it just gets too boring. But there's like a, it doesn't say the, it says and. It says, you know, God gave, there's and elders, and, uh, I'm sorry, and apostles, and prophets, and evangelists. This is nice little grammatical units. And then there's and pastors, teachers. And the pastors and teachers go together as one sort of like, same sort of grammatical unit as the apostles and the prophets were. And, and most people assume that this is because pastors and teachers is talking about the same role pastors, teachers, okay? So let's start off with that. I'm gonna give you four things. There's a ton of them too, all right? I mean, I'm just sort of picked four. It's not really a random because I wanna make a larger point. But there's four things that, the, that these two texts are gonna tell us pastors should be doing, should be in the life of the church if they are good pastors. And by the way, I hope you don't suspect me of like, this is not gonna be an exercise in self-justification. Like I, when I preached this in the 745 service, I was kind of like feeling guilty the whole time because I'm like batting 250 at best on these things that pastors should be, all right? I need, again, I need you guys to hold me accountable that this is the pastor, this is the type of person God's called me to be and I should be. There are four things here. The first is teacher. Pastors and teachers. Paul starts off with that, pastors and teachers. I think that this is... Uh, if it's true that when the word of God is proclaimed publicly, as 1 Peter 4 says, it's as an oracle of God that when God's word is proclaimed out loud 
amongst God's people, it is the voice of God himself speaking. And that means that what I'm doing now is maybe the most important thing I do. You know, every week is different. Every relationship I have with each one of you is different. But generally speaking, preaching the word and teaching the Bible is the most important thing I do. However, I don't wanna get stuck behind Western notions of teaching. Here in the West, we, since the Enlightenment, we primarily think of teaching as information, download. Like I studied the Bible this week. I'm gonna give you four things. You should, you know, hopefully think about these things. Some of you, some of the go-getters amongst you will write them down and memorize them or think about them for the week. But that's how we, we, we mainly think of teaching in that way. And it really wasn't until a few years ago when I started teaching comparative religions at the local community college that I realized that most of the world doesn't think of teaching in that way. In Hinduism and Buddhism, for instance, a teacher is not, an, you know, not a lecturer. A teacher is almost like a life coach. You know, a popular Hindu word for teacher is guru. And, and many students will move to live with their teacher or at, you know, outside their teacher's house so that they can be with them throughout the whole day because they understand that teaching is not just information, but it's life coaching. It's a way of life. I think that that's what Paul has in mind here. This is less the pastor's job is to give you information from God's word and more the pastor's job is to life coach you in the Christian life. And here's why I say that, because of point number two. If we keep on reading here, it's not just teaching, but here's, what, here's how Paul explains teaching. Uh, God gave us pastors and teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The job of the teacher is not just to tell us what to do or tell us what's true. The job of the pastor teacher, the shepherd teacher, is to equip us for the work of the ministry. Equipping is much more in-depth, isn't it, than just instruction. It's much more hands-on. That word equip there is super interesting. I'm gonna give you, there's, I'm gonna give you some examples. The, the, the word equip, what does that mean? That's a good question. What does it mean, equip? How does, how does a pastor teacher equip us? Well, in the New Testament, that word equip can be used, and depending on where it's used, it takes on different flavors. And I wanna give you a little bit, if I, if I can give you three of those things right now, as quickly as I can, three things that the word equip means in the New Testament. The first is to help repair what is broken. The second is to help fill up what is lacking. And the third is to bring together those who were separate. I know this it's, it almost feels like three separate things, but believe me, we'll, we'll look at these. To, to repair what's broken, to fill up what's lacking, and to bring together those who are separate. So let me, get, let me show you some instances in the New Testament where the word equip means those things. So first of all, to repair what is broken. In Matthew 4.21, you'll remember this story. Jesus is in Galilee, and he's going around, and he's calling his disciples to follow him. And it says in verse 21, he sees two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John, in the boat with Zebedee their father, and they're mending their nets. They're fisher people, right? And they're mending their nets, and he calls them. Now, the word mending there, mending their nets, is actually the word, it's the exact same word that we have in Ephesians 4.12 for equip. They're equipping their nets. Only equipping doesn't really, I mean, you, you can see where that's headed there, but it's not exactly, what they're doing is they're repairing tears in their nets that fish have made or rocks have made or whatever. They're mending their nets. In other words, equipping here specifically is repairing what has been broken. And this is, pastors will frequently find themselves doing this. It's not, in, it's not good enough if a pastor is, I'm headed somewhere with this, by the way. It's not good enough that a pastor just stands in the pulpit and you know, preaches God's word. A pastor's job is to help you repair what is broken in your life. And this is where I'm headed. 
Your job is to help the pastor repair what's broken in his life too, okay? So whatever that is, it could be broken relationship. It could be like struggles with a spouse or abandonment. It could be struggles with your kids. It could be a broken financial situation. It could be broken behavior patterns or thought patterns. It could be broken emotional uh, triggers that you have. It's the pastor's job, not just to teach you, but to walk with you through life. So so pastor's much less like a, a, a teacher and a lecturer and more like, Think about like if you're gonna go mountain climbing, okay? You're gonna climb uh, Himalaya, which is very, very, that'd be very, very uh, confident and bold move of you. You would want an expert mountain climber. You would want a Sherpa from Tibet with you, right? And the Sherpa wouldn't say, okay, you wanna climb Himalaya? Um, Well, let me give you uh, some rules here. You're gonna wanna go up, right? It's not, what the Sherpa's gonna do is gonna look around and find, you know, that air canister there is broken you know, we're going to need to fix that. We're going to need to replace that. That carabiner is broken. We're going to need to fix that. You know, th- th- that your bootstrap is broken. We're going to need to fix that. That sort of thing. Part of the job of the teacher is to fix what's broken. All right, so, the, and the word equip uh, can mean that too. Okay, second thing here, uh, to help supply what is missing. First Thessalonians 3.10 is going to use this word as well. Paul says this. I, he says this to the church at Thessalonica. I pray most earnestly night and day that I may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. And the word behind supply is our word, equip. Equip what's lacking. Part of the pastor's job, part of your job, is to equip what's lacking in in people's faith. It's all of us. Let me me talk for a second to those of you who are Christians. Every single one of you, if you're an honest Christian, when you come to Jesus, if you're honest, you come as someone who believes in Jesus, else you wouldn't come to Jesus, but as someone who has doubts, as someone who has gaps in your faith. Every approach to Jesus is a Lord, I believe, help my unbelief approach. And what we need is somebody to come in and fill up that faith that's lacking, to fill up what's missing there. You know, like the Sherpa is gonna, is gonna say, you, know, you, have the, you have the wrong kind of cleat. We're gonna need to get you the right kind of cleat. This is what teachers do. They don't just tell you. They start to fill up what's lacking. Faith is what Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 3. There are parts of my life where my faith is strong. There are parts of my life where my faith is weak. It's my job as a shepherd to come and meet you wherever you're at in your faith walk and take from my faith and build up your faith where it's, where it's weak. And by the way, this is where we're headed. I'm gonna need you to take from where your faith is strong and build up my faith when, it, when it's weak because this is what shepherds do. This is a part of teaching. This, this is a part of equipping, is filling up the faith that's lacking. Okay, here's the third thing, is to bring together those who are separate. To bring together those who are separate. I'm gonna give you two verses here, because these are good ones. Uh, Galatians 6, Paul says this, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's got this notion of like those who have, have been driven away by sin should be brought back and restored. And there's this sense here of like this, you know, this vertical restoration with God, but all this, also this horizontal restoration in the family of God. The word that Paul uses for restore here is the same word he uses for equip. Like to bring back into, to take together what's separate and to make it one. All right, let me give you another example. Similar sort of thing. Second Corinthians 13, right near the end of Second Corinthians, Paul says to the church, there, finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. 
that first line of that first command, aim for restoration, is actually just one word in Greek. And it's this word, it's the word for equip. Aim for restoration. Live at peace with one another. Agree with one another. And the God of peace will be with you. What's, what's he saying here? Part of equipping is to convince people that separateness is defective and togetherness is the way that things have to work. The Sherpa's gonna do this. The Sherpa's gonna say, if anybody here has a notion that you can just take off by yourself and climb, climb Everest, you are going to die. Everybody is, if this is gonna work, we're all gonna have to work together. We're all gonna have to participate in this climb together. We're gonna have to hold each other's ropes. We're gonna have to support each other's weights. We're gonna have to carry each other's equipment. We're gonna have to spot for each other to make sure nobody's stepping on any sort of faulty ground. It has to happen together or we are going to die. So part of a pastor's job, part of equipping, along with uh, fixing what's wrong and filling up, with the, filling up with what's empty, is to bring together, to, now maybe this is gonna be me trying to convince you that your life will be so much more richer and much more gospel-centered and much more Jesus-honoring if you are involved in Christian community. And maybe this is community groups. Maybe this is adult Bible study. Maybe this is getting involved in mercy ministries and joining a team that's working together to advance the gospel in Glen Carver. But it cannot be alone. If you're, so let me say this. Let me sum it up this way. Let's do this. I'm gonna come back to this. What's Paul's point here when he says equip? He's saying this. It's, let me quote it again, Ephesians 4 and 11. God has given us pastors and teachers, what for? To do the work of the ministry. No, it actually says to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. The job of the shepherd teacher is to equip you guys to do the work of the ministry. This is not sacerdotalism. It's not my job to do the ministry and you to show up to listen to my wonderful, enlightening, inspirational sermons. It's your job. It's what I should be doing is trying to get you involved in the ministry too. Now, if your notion of Christian church is, okay, I'm gonna try to live my life as a Christian. I'm gonna try to be honest. And I, I realize that part of that is once a week, I need to go listen to a sermon and sing some hymns and give my tithes and, and greet my fellow worshipers so that I can maybe be charged up to go and live the Christian life, then you're completely missing the entire point of what Paul is saying when he says that it's the job of the pastor to equip. You're like somebody who says, let's go, I'm gonna meet with the Sherpa because I think it's really cool. Like when he points out to me how defective my equipment is, I really need to know that. I write that stuff down. When he talks about teamwork and climbing mountains, I like take notes. And meanwhile, the group goes off to climb the mountain and I head back home. You're completely missing the point. The point here is that we have a huge mountain to climb and that mountain is the mission of the kingdom of God here in Glen Carbon. And it's super important that all of us be doing this. It's not one person's job. It's not five people's job. God has called us as the body of Christ to be on mission here in Glen Carbon. And the pastor's number one job is not to do the work of the ministry. The pastor's number one job is to shepherd, equip, teach you guys to do the work of the ministry too. And if you're not involved, then there's something wrong. And I don't wanna bring it down on you. I shouldn't say there's something wrong. I say, if you are involved, you will know by experience that there's something right. There's something close to the heart of God that's, that being involved in this equipping includes. And so I, I encourage, I strongly encourage you to participate in the life of this. Okay, now, side question. Some of you are gonna say, well, now this sounds weird because I've always kind of grown up thinking like pastors have this special divine ability, like this special calling where they're special. Can I just say real quick that I think I'm special? I don't think that I'm special like in any sense that's different than you guys though. You know, I think that your calling is just as sacred as my calling. 
I am not somehow above you guys. I'm not somehow, and now what I'm doing here, don't hear false humility here, because I do, I'm passive aggressive. I, I pull the false humility card sometimes. So don't hear that here. What I'm not trying to do is to say, I'm just one of you guys, shucks. I'm saying that you guys are all pastor shepherds with me. That's the part of the equipping. That's a part of the ministry. That's a part of the service that he's talking about is that all of us are shepherds underneath the great shepherd. Some of us devote our lives to helping equip the rest of us to become shepherds, but you're called the shepherd too, just alongside with me. Can I make one more point about this word equip? And you'll see where I'm coming from. This is so delicious. Luke chapter six, verse 40, Jesus says this. This is worth you going and looking at later. Jesus says this. A disciple is not above his teacher. However, everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Now, I'm gonna give you three, three guesses. What do you think the Greek word behind fully trained there is? It's equipped. The whole point of the equipping is that we become like the teacher. If we're gonna be the body of Christ, we have to become, we are the body of Christ. We have to live out, manifest what it means to be the body of Christ. It's my job as an under-shepherd to make and, and equip you guys to be under-shepherds as well. Okay, I promise you, I promise you that I know that that was just the second point and we're 20 minutes into this thing. And so you're thinking like, there's two more points and I'm gonna be here for the rest of the morning. That's not the case. The other two are shorter, but this is a big one. And I wanted to sit down on top of that equip for a few minutes and focus on, that's what we're doing here. See, that's not just about me, right? It's about you guys too. It's about what we are to be doing as a church. We are all to be a part of the ministry. Okay, so you can kind of see where this is headed. Teaching and equipping is less about talking, although that's super important. God's word has to be, that's why God works. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the proclamation of the word of God. It also has to be modeled. That's the third word here is modeled, okay? A pastor teacher's job is to model kingdom life. It's not just my job to tell you what to do. It's my job to model. Look at 1 Peter 5. Verse three is super important. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Elders, Shepherds, you are to be examples to the flock. Now this is, I feel so guilty about this because honestly, if you would say to me, and you should, honestly, you should. Aaron, give me five ways that you are setting an example for the flock. I would struggle with that. I'm not involved, and I know that the virus has messed stuff up. I'm not involved in your life in one-on-one -on -one discipleship ways like I should be. I'm really good at telling you what to do from this block of wood up here. And I'm way worse at actually being in your life as a servant of Jesus. And so I'm not, this is not self-justification here. This is almost self-condemnation. And let's go, to the, let's go to the cross of Christ together and, and, and grapple with what he's calling us to here. I'm to be an example to you. I am to live out what it means to be a Christian servant, a, a lover of Jesus, somebody who's passionately committed about community, somebody who's passionately committed about the mission in Glen Carbon. And the best teachers are always like this, right? The best teachers are always the modelers. That's what, we, that's what we want in a teacher. We don't want somebody to tell us what to do. My son has this great golf coach, right? And so Harry's learning golf, and this, this guy meets us up at Rolling Hills in Godfrey. This old man. He coaches at Marquette and at Alton High. And he's just so good. And he just, he doesn't, like he meets with Harry, and he's like, uh, like you know, Harry's shy. And he's like, he's like five inches away from Harry's face, you know, because Harry's like doing everything he can to not make eye contact with this grown person. And he's like telling him what to do. And then he's doing it with him. He's like modeling it. And he's so encouraging. And he like, 
he does what I should do as a pastor. You know, these, the four steps, like the, you know, like the, the transformation, the, the, the four steps of modeling, good teaching, you know, is, you know, I do and you watch. And then I do and you help is the second step. And then you do and I help. And then you do and I watch. This transformation of people from watchers, which is watchers, that's, we, we should name some of our Lutheran churches, you know, watcher Lutheran church, passive in the pew Lutheran church. This, and this is my fault too. This is not like we pastors encourage this as I'm not blaming anybody but myself here. To transform us from watchers to doers is the job of the pastor to set the example. Not to, not, not, not to be the, you know, the, the, I'm the perfect Christian, but to actually live as an example so that people can, that's what teaching is, so that change and grow and to become good Christians too. How do we do this? What, what does it mean to model? That's a very, you know, so it's kind of vague at this point, modeling. What are we modeling? You know, I just, I, and I talked about it vaguely, Christian life, beyond mission, these sorts of things. There's a very specific thing that Peter points us to that the gospel reading will lock us into here. And in 1 Peter 5, if you look at this, he says in verse, oh, by the way, can I make this point real quick here? What is the opposite of modeling in verse three? I, I, I wanna touch on this just for a second, if you'll let me. In verse three, the opposite of modeling is not domineering over those in your charge. God, God has not called me to be your dominus, to be your Lord, to be your master. And when I try to be, you gotta call me on it. So we talked about this last week. This is sacerdotal, right? God, how does, how does Jesus exercise in his, his authority in the church? By the decision-making pastor? No, by the body of Christ. Let me say this, I'm gonna say this, and I'm gonna, I want you to think about this. This is gonna be one of those things that's gonna be difficult for a lot of us to agree to. And I'm gonna say this, and it's gonna sound spiritual because I'm wearing an awl, and you're gonna be like, okay. And then tomorrow morning, you're gonna completely forget it and go back to the default. It is not the pastor's job to make decisions in the church. Now, I'm gonna make decisions. I'm gonna decide which of the texts I'm gonna preach on and those sorts of things, right? But it's not my job to make the decisions in the church. Whose job is it to make the decisions in the church? The body of Christ. We do it organically as a body working together. We have to come together. This is why community is so important. I'm not, I'm not in charge of the youth group. I don't make the decisions for the youth group. You, you equip somebody else to do it, and then they make the decisions. All of you have parts of ministries that you need to be making the decisions as a part of the body. It's not my job. I'm not the domineering one, or I don't need to be. Let me say that. I don't need to be. And when I am, I need to be called on. Okay, that's the third thing is modeling. And the fourth thing specifically, like I said, we model. What do we model? First Peter 5, last verse. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter points at this, right? So there's a chief shepherd. Like I'm called to be, a, he says, shepherd, elder shepherd, the flock of God here. But there's actually a chief shepherd above you, right? Shepherds, whether it's me, the pastor, the shepherd teacher here, or you who are learning to shepherd at, uh, in the ministries God's called you to here, there's actually a model for what it means to be a shepherd, and that is the good shepherd. What is that? What does it look like in John 10? We just read the, good, the famous good shepherd text a few minutes ago. Can we look over there real quick in John chapter 10? And I promise you I'm almost done. John chapter 10, um, verse 11, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. What's the next line he says? The good shepherd lays down his life uh, for the sheep. Self-sacrifice. This is what it means to be a shepherd teacher. It is It's what it should mean. Again, I'm feeling guilty right now. It's self-sacrifice. To give up yourself to benefit the other. 
is the way that God's gonna lead his Christian church, whether it's me or it's you in your ministry. Now, why is it hard to live self-sacrificially? Why is it hard to let other people get their way? Why is it hard to love somebody and forgive somebody even when they don't know that you've done the acts of forgiveness? Why is it hard to choose to not hold something in your heart against somebody else? Why is it hard to sit in a meeting and somebody say, I think we should do this, and it's so important to them that you say, you know what, it's not my favorite, but I'm gonna go along with it, and I'm not going to be like, okay, fine, I'll do it. I'm spiritual, I'll do it. Why is that so hard to do? Do you remember that I gave this example several weeks ago, it's probably a month or so ago, about my kids and the soda glasses, you know, and I got the one uh, daughter who, I won't tell you which one it is, her initials are Kate, and so she's looking at the soda glasses, you know, the three soda glasses for the kids, and she's got to have them perfectly plumb line level, and the reason why is because in her mind, and in my mind, this is the way I think too, if, if somebody else has more soda in their glass, that means my soda's going down. My soda's going down. And that's hard to be like, okay, I'm gonna lose. Self-sacrifice means that you have to have the attitude that I'm gonna lose this one. Part of being a shepherd is losing, living a life of losing. I'm gonna give up my life to benefit your life. Now, here's the, this is good stuff. The heart of the gospel is this, though, is that at the cross, Jesus loses, but he doesn't lose. The resurrection is always there. The cross and the resurrection always go together. The self-sacrifice of Jesus ends up in him ruling and reigning, being exalted to the right hand of his father so that every knee, every tongue, every tribe, every nation will bow and proclaim that he is Lord. He doesn't lose anything by losing. He sacrifices his life to get it back. And this is what he says here. And I don't even know if this is not actually in the bulletin. It's, it's a verse that's just a little bit past in John chapter 10. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. You say, so, Here's, here's the gospel principle. In the cross, Jesus loses his life for us so that he can take it up again and benefit us. You imagine, I imagine, that when somebody else's glass, the soda in somebody else's glass is going up, our soda is going down. But I'm just telling you the truth. If you'll take your glass and you'll pour it in their glass, you're gonna imagine that your glass is gonna be empty. But in the, by the power of the gospel, at the cross of Jesus Christ, when you set your glass back down next to their glass, you will notice that you have just as much soda as they do. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the self-sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is that he loses, but his, lo his losing is victory. He empties himself, but his emptying himself is filling up everybody else, including himself. The body of Christ is the most powerful force in the universe. That's what we're called to be here. So we're, this is what we're talking about. But it's the most powerful force in the universe because Jesus sacrifices himself for us. Okay, we're gonna come back next week and we're gonna talk about why is it that what's happening here, this, this uh, equipping, this teaching, this modeling, this self-sacrifice, this shepherding some, somehow always seems to come after the noun elders? What do elders have to do with it? We're gonna talk about that next week, okay? Let's pray, then we'll have communion. Father, uh, bless our, our reading of your word this morning, and I pray that you would equip all of us to be, uh, you are equipping us uh, in the power, by the power of your Holy Spirit through the sacrifice and the resurrection of your son, Jesus, to be on mission for you here in Glen Carbon. Uh, Father, glorify yourself, not us, but glorify yourself through what we do. Uh, glorify yourself in uh, our celebration of your uh, death and resurrection as you come and meet with us here, not, not just in the preaching of your word now, but now as we come to your table. 
We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, would you stand with me? And we will continue in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I pray, again, I pray, continue in prayer this morning that you would be with our church and that you would put us on mission. Uh, Father, it's so easy to fall into old habits of uh, church as spectator sport. Uh, God, light our hearts on fire for you. Light our hearts on fire for your mission. Father, we wanna be equipped. We don't just wanna be recipients. We wanna be equipped so that we can climb this mountain, this mountain of your kingdom of God, growing and growing and growing here in Glen Carbon. So lead us, teach us, equip us, uh, model for us, give us good models. Uh, Lord, we acknowledge your sacrifice at the cross. Help us to embody that sacrifice for each other so that your kingdom can grow, Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray this morning for everybody who's uh, struggling and suffering, and we pray that you would bring us to completion, that you would equip us, whether that's with physical health or uh, financial health or psychological health, mental health, social health. Um, Father, just take care of all of us, I, especially those who are struggling uh, badly right now with all, all, all these different kinds of uh, brokennesses. I wanna pray, especially this morning, that you would continue giving strength and energy and healing to Scott, who had successful surgery this past week, that you would bless him uh, more and more and bring him back to full health. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we praise and thank you so much for bringing, you, bringing us into your throne room where we, as your dear children, can ask you for anything and know that you will give us an answer. Know that you will answer us, not just in your powerful sovereignty, but in your infinite passion and love for us. And we also freely acknowledge that the only way we can come into this throne room is underneath the auspices and in union with your son, Jesus Christ, who has bound us to himself in baptism and in faith. And so we pray this in his name, amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
Showed you.